Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here, the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. The end of another week, at least insofar as this program is concerned, coming to you live from the nation's capital of Ottawa, where you see strange things around. The problem with, like, there are two Ottawas. There's the real Ottawa that is like a municipality like any other in Canada, and you've got all your suburbs and communities and people with real lives, real jobs. And then there's downtown Ottawa. And I was very sympathetic when the Freedom Convoy came up to people saying, listen, I live downtown. But for the most part, it's not normal people that live in downtown Ottawa. There are some, but it's like, and by not normal, I mean it's politicians and bureaucrats and stuff like that. They're humans, but they're like a very strange subset of humans. So everywhere you go, you're running into people. Like there's one guy, uh, Jasraj uh, Singh Hallen, who's the conservative finance critic. I've interviewed him before. Very nice guy. I've seen him like nine times in four days. And I had thought like I had seen him enough times. And then last night I was in a meeting with someone and he like it came in because he needed to see them. So that was number nine. So this is Ottawa. And then yesterday I was uh, just walking around Parliament Hill and I saw Jagmeet Singh like riding away on his bicycle. And uh, it was actually, to be honest, it was impressive because generally speaking, I thought you needed a spine to ride a bike. Uh, and uh, Jagmeet Singh managed to be riding at a pretty good clip, uh, despite all of the things that he says. For example, uh, if I'm talking about what's happening on Twitter or X, as it's now called, Jagmeet Singh has done, it never ceases to amuse me. This is the tweet he shared this morning about the rising grocery prices. He puts the blame on Justin Trudeau. He says it's, uh, you know, the Justin Trudeau, the liberals have been doing this and only the NDP are the ones that are going to uh, call this out. Only the NDP are going to. This was a tweet from a couple of days ago, but the thing that I find most interesting about it is that he always forgets to include the other part of that. You kind of have to really, really squint and you know really look closely to see, oh, by the way, I'm the one that's keeping the Liberal government in power right now. So uh, maybe he was riding his bike so fast yesterday because uh, accountability were the things he was, uh, was the thing he was trying to flee. But nevertheless, the grocery store debate about what to do with them to the liberals is basically just summon all the CEOs to Ottawa, finger wag and say, you must produce a plan. The liberal government is actually unveiling that right now. The plan that they demanded by Thanksgiving to do something about rising grocery costs. It's not actually going to do anything at all. All we're reminded of here is that uh, grocery stores in Canada are really coming down to a five day, a five company group. It's a, an oligopoly. Aaron Woodrick uh, posted this tweet here, which I, I found was quite incisive about the problem. He said, Philippe Francois Champagne this morning was talking about the virtues of competition and this afternoon is talking about the federal government essentially working with this oligopoly to fix prices because the government, and by the way, the NDP, have taken the view that gross, greedy grocery store profiteers are the problem, that greedy CEOs, the capitalist system, that's the reason that things are so expensive, not inflation, which as we've discussed on this show, has a number of influencing factors. But the carbon tax is a very big one. It's not grocery store profits. And in fact, if you look at the shrinkage that grocery stores have to contend with, if you look at the theft 
issues that grocery stores, especially now, have to contend with. If you look at their operating costs, which are driven up by fuel taxes, carbon taxes, all that sort of stuff, and then just general cost of doing things. In Ontario, for example, the minimum wage is going up quite significantly. I think it's now at uh, $16.55 an hour, which I remember when $15 an hour was seen as a very radical push. And I remember when businesses were justifiably talking in Ontario about how difficult it was going to be for them to make a go of things at a $15 an hour minimum wage. Now, a few years have passed, mind you, that is going up entirely. You may say that even a minimum wage salary today is not enough to comfortably live, which I am entirely sympathetic to, but those increases to the cost of labor put a responsibility on employers that they cannot just shoulder. The profit margins are not thick enough that they can just, with the stroke of a pen, say, okay, yeah, we're paying everyone more. That money has to go down to customers. And there was a, a, a spokesperson, I can't remember if I mentioned it yesterday, from the Bank of Canada, I did mention it, who had said, we're going to be seeing a feedback loop, that inflation is going to cause more inflation, which sounds like a stupid point. And ideally, people in the Bank of Canada would be well aware of this. But it's also, at the same time, a self-evident point, that the rising costs affect everyone, including people who have to decide what to price things they're selling at. And you put this in the context in which I think it's most important to be viewed in, which is the effect on individual people, not on companies, not on government, but on ordinary people. And it is heartbreaking how many people are hurting. And this is something that I, I should actually one day devote a considerable chunk of time to going through some of the emails I've seen that have been very difficult on this question. Emails from people who are making very difficult decisions. And I, I know I'm starting to do a wind up like I'm some politician on the campaign trail of, oh, well, I met a constituent in Kelowna who said X, Y, Z. But people are hurting. And governments tend to not be aware of that in a very real way. They may be aware in an abstract way. People in the general sense are hurting, but the individual struggles and the commonalities between those individual struggles, I don't think they're paying attention to. This morning, there was a report that was released from Dalhousie. And we've seen uh, Sylvain Charlebois on the show before. He's a, probably the leading scholar and researcher on food supply chain and food pricing issues in Canada. And this survey found that two-thirds of Canadians are concerned about the long-term health implications of the choices they're making today. Not because they're making unhealthy choices uh, just for sake of preference, but because they're having to buy less healthy products, less nutritious products, because of inflation, because they cannot afford fresh food, fresh produce. You look further to this and find that half of the respondents of this survey, if I think it was 47%, are doing more grocery shopping at the dollar store than they are at the grocery store for the same reason, because of inflation. Now, I want to say first and foremost here, I am not judging anyone for the decisions they make. If you decide, you know what, I can get so-and-so for cheaper, I don't care about the name brands, and you know, if I want to get like, you know, Dr. Broccoli instead of Dr. Pepper, and I can get it for half the price at the do dollar store, great. I'm not talking about people that are making just frugal decisions for whatever reason, same as some people that used to load up at the bulk food store and only get some things at the grocery store. That's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are only doing it because of the circumstances 
of the economy. People who are only making that choice because they have no other options or they feel they have no other option. And that's something we're seeing so much of right now in this country. People that are going to the grocery store, and we, we've seen this. There have been countless studies, polls, surveys that have showed this. People that are buying less food, people who are skipping meals, people who are compromising on quality, people who are compromising, compromising on freshness, people who are compromising on nutrition. And all of these decisions are coming about because they cannot afford to otherwise feed themselves or in more heartbreaking cases to feed their families. And this is a crisis. This is not a problem. This is a crisis. Rishi Sunak the other day, the prime minister of the UK was referring in some interview to the inflation tax. And he said the inflation tax harms the poor. And this smug, self-righteous interviewer spends the next however many minutes arguing with him about whether you can call inflation a tax. And she's like, oh, it's not a tax. It's not. And he says it is. It's absolutely a tax. It is a penalty on living. That is what inflation is. And that, again, the fact that it was a debate being held in the UK shows this is not exclusively a Canadian problem. So no, I'm not one of these people that looks to Justin Trudeau and said, you caused this global trend. But I will look to Justin Trudeau and say that you did not put Canada in the best position to withstand this. You did not. And Justin Trudeau's only answer to this has been to wag his finger at grocery store CEOs. Take a look at this clip from a few weeks back. It's not okay that our biggest grocery stores are making record profits while Canadians are struggling to put food on the table. So Minister Champagne, will be calling on the heads of large grocers to come to Ottawa with a plan to address the rising cost of food. And we expect to hear from them by Thanksgiving on what their plan is to stabilize prices. And it... And let me be very clear, if their plan doesn't provide real relief for the middle class and people working hard to join it, then we will take further action and we are not ruling anything out, including tax measures. So obviously the announcement today suggests that the government has gotten what it wanted. Grocery store CEOs have put their heads together. They've come up with some agreement that they're going to do, which I, I'm guaranteeing right now, and, and I'm not a particularly pessimistic person. Well, no, who am I kidding? I am. I want to be an optimist. I, I'm like the middle class seeking to join it. I'm like the optimist and those seeking to be optimists. But the thing about it is that I would encourage you to, when you go to your grocery store this weekend, maybe you're doing a big Thanksgiving turkey dinner. I can't stand turkey. I hate that it's become the default traditional holiday food for like three holidays every year and some other ones. But nevertheless, this isn't about my dislike for turkey. I, I just find it boring. Now, it's not, there's nothing objectionable about it. It's just like the, it's like the Aaron O'Toole of poultry. It's like just, it has nothing to offer unless you just load it up with gravy and all these other things. So I would just prefer to have the gravy. But nevertheless, the one thing that I'll point out here is that I know Canadians are not going to see this stability by Thanksgiving that was promised. So this tough talk, we're not taking anything off the table. We're doing this and we're doing that. And we're going to put tax measures if we have to. Uh, by the way, like tax measures. 
how are you going to tax your way out of a mess that was already caused by increasing prices and increasing costs. And the government has never answered this. I, I mean, I remember trying to make sense of this with Aaron Woodrick, whose tweet I showed earlier, earlier when this happened. And I was like, how are we like, I, I, I'm just fail. I mean, liberal logic is sometimes difficult to keep up with in general, but oftentimes you can sort of try to figure out at least how they got to the conclusion, even if you realize that it may be a dumb point. In this one, I'm like, how are tax measures going to penalize grocery stores to bringing their prices down because they will have to pay this, you know, penalty tax because they didn't lower the price of turkey and how are they going to recoup that well they're going to increase the price of turkey or gravy or whatever the case is. So it like it literally makes no sense whatsoever. And when Canadians are buying their groceries at the dollar store, they are dispensing. And maybe there's a Dollarama out there that has a decent selection of romaine lettuce or something. But any dollar store I've seen uh, has, which, by the way, I mean, how dollar stores have survived now, I have no idea because, you know, nothing is a dollar. So the groceries they're selling are heavily preserved foods things that are not healthy. And I, no one is looking at me and being like, this is the guy I'm taking health advice from. I'm not giving you health advice. My problems did not come from buying food at the, at, the, at the dollar store, I assure you. But I am making the point here that when people are making these decisions, not because they're choosing them, but are making them because the economic realities are forcing them to, this is a problem. And it's not going to surprise me if we see in five, 10 years, the consequences of this, of, of children who have been developmentally delayed, who have been malnourished in some way, of, of people that haven't developed in certain ways because they haven't been eating as much, they haven't been eating as right. I mean, th these are the types of things that are lagging indicators where they take a fair bit of time to catch up with what the consequences are of the decision. Uh, Bill Peace has a message. He says, turkeys are 4651 at Food Basics. Happy Thanksgiving. Now, that actually doesn't seem like a terrible price for turkey. Uh, I, wait, I, I didn't even know we could put the comments up on the screen there. That's great. This is like, an, I should read comments more often. I didn't know we had that in our uh, in our program here. I get all excited. Small things amuse small minds, as they say. But that, like, again, Food Basics, they're supposed to be one of the inexpensive grocers, not one of the really high-end ones. This isn't like Loblaws or Sobeys or anything like that. I mean, Sobeys is a, a pricey store. They they have good quality stuff oftentimes when I've been there. But this is exactly where things are, I, I think, moving along. Now, one of the big challenges, and I, I'm going to be talking about this a little bit more next week, obviously, once I've had a, a chance to look through whatever is being proposed and whatever is being announced here. But I want to hear from you on this. And I don't often crowdsource this sort of stuff because my inbox then gets a little full and it, it's unwieldy for me to keep up with it. But but I, I want you to actually report when this change has, has been announced and we'll give it time to sink in or be adopted. I want you to tell me if you've seen any changes and if so, what they are. And it's kind of a two-part assignment, if you will. Not that I like to be the podcaster giving you homework. Maybe we can get the CRTC to regulate that out of here. But what I would encourage you to do is, if you're at the grocery store today or tomorrow, take a look at the prices of a couple of things. Pick like two or three items and then see what they are after these so-called stabilization measures are in effect and in force. That, that's going to be the assignment. That's what you have to do here. And I am 
going to bet it's not going to make a difference. So all of this was theatrical. The government makes it look like it's going tough on these big, evil, greedy grocery store CEOs. And I'll say on this point, by the way, the grocery store CEOs have done themselves no favors here. When they had that meeting in Ottawa a few weeks back and they were all summoned here, and it was all five. It was uh, Sobeys, Costco, and Costco, I, I felt, was like, I don't even think of as a grocery store, but uh, Costco, Sobeys, Loblaws, Metro, uh, and there was one more that I, I'm forgetting. But uh, when all of them went there, one of the things that I, I found interesting about it was that they all just blew off the media. The media were out there asking them questions, trying to scrum them as they went in. Only one of them really stopped to talk, and, and he just gave like this boilerplate line. Galen Weston, who like the NDP would basically call for the public execution of if it were within the law, uh, just kind of walks in smugly and give, gives nothing. If I were one of these grocery store CEOs, I would be out there with the media going through in painstaking detail what it is that the government is doing that is causing these problems. Because it's easy if you don't know enough about business to look at the bottom line and say, oh, wow, they're making millions, billions of dollars, whatever the case is. Like, it's easy to make that claim. But when people see how much it costs them to be in business, Yes, they're making profits, but it's the profitability of companies that makes it worthwhile to invest in those companies and invest in business and invest in doing things that allow us to have grocery stores in the first place. If it weren't profitable, they wouldn't do it. And then we're left with just nationalizing grocery stores. And mark my words, there's going to be a semi-serious push from someone in politics at some point in the next few years to create a national grocery store chain. And it's probably going to come from the NDP. But at this point, I'm not convinced the liberal government would be opposing it. So uh, we'll talk about that more. But uh, I do sincerely feel for all the people that are struggling right now. And I, I can't say that I can solve the problem. But I can say that I'm listening and I'm aware of it. And I wish lawmakers do as well. And, you know, I met a couple of MPs this week who I'm very grateful listen to this show. So uh, some of them are hearing it. That I can tell you. Uh, speaking of MPs, there's no natural segue from produce to assisted suicide. So I'll just do like the hard stop and, and move on here. There is, as you know, this ongoing debate in Ottawa, and it's a debate being uh, under, well, it's underway across the country, I think, probably more so elsewhere than it is in the nation's capital on assisted suicide. The government has committed to a very ideological approach that is vastly expanding eligibility for what they call made the euphemism medical assistance in dying and one of these expansions includes the ability for someone to access this when they're dealing not with an irremediable physical medical condition but someone who's dealing only with a mental health condition and that is so key here because sometimes the symptom of a mental illness is wanting to end your life so how can the so-called cure or treatment to that condition also be ending your life? And this is near and dear to my heart. I have shared this on the show before. For some of you, you may not have heard it. I am a suicide survivor. When I was younger in 2010, I had been going through for several years a mental health struggle, mainly depression, and I very nearly succeeded in ending my own life. And it was my greatest failure. And it's a failure I'm tremendously proud of because all the things I have in life since then, my career, my life, my friends, my wife, 
has come about because I found a path and a hope that I did not know was possible. And it is heartbreaking on a very personal level. Set aside the policy of it. When I see a government so committed to this idea that ending your life with the state's assistant is a right that no one has the ability to interfere with. Because I know it's a regime that if it were in place in 2010, I would have been very motivated to avail myself of. And the doctors, the care workers that told me, no, you don't get to end your life, we're going to help you, would have been compelled to do the opposite, to assist me with what was a very flawed and ill approach. Now, this is a lengthy wind-up to a private member's bill that's been introduced by Conservative MP Ed Fast. It was introduced in May, but it's actually this week getting a hearing, which I, I'm very grateful for. It's called Bill C-314. There was a press conference about it uh, just a couple of blocks from where I am earlier this week. Alex Schattenberg is the executive director of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition and joins me now. Alex, it's good to talk to you. What does this private member's bill do? Well, actually, the private member's bill is very clear. It would um, it just reverse what was already passed by Bill C-7 in March of 2021. So Bill C-7 was the bill that expanded euthanasia and assisted suicide in Canada, we call MAID. It expanded it to include people who are not terminally ill. One of the things that bill did is it allowed for euthanasia for mental illness alone, but they put a two-year moratorium on that. And you might remember uh, last December when the government was getting a lot of heat over the issue of people with disabilities who were dying by uh, MAID uh, because of homelessness and poverty and an inability to get medical treatment, etc. And these stories were coming at them one at a time uh, consistently that they decided to delay the MAID for mental illness until March of 2024. So Ed Fast bill would actually end that prospect and say that it does not, uh, it is not part of the law to allow MAID for mental illness alone. This has been, I mean, obviously there's a, an ideological aversion to assisted suicide in general among a lot of uh, social conservatives in Canada and some other people as well. The mental illness criterion has galvanized a lot of people that do not identify as pro-life, don't identify as social conservative. We're talking about disability activists, mental health activists, yep. a lot of medical providers that are at the very minimum concerned uh, at another level, completely outraged by this. But even so, the government has been unflinching. It's like they've said, well, we'll consult, we'll talk about it, but they really haven't shown no. any signs of walking this back, have they? No, they haven't. And in fact, uh, the Canadian Association of uh, of uh, the suicide prevention organizations, they're against, uh, you know, made for mental illness. Uh, in our own press conference, we had two young women give very similar stories to your story, talking about, you know, the times they went through when they were, you know, one was uh, hospitalized for over a month and and had constant relapses into deep, deep, deep depression. And her story was, well, if you had offered it to me then, I would have taken it because I wanted death. Another one uh, attempted suicide unsuccessfully, thankfully, seven times and said, you know, if you had offered me uh, medical aid in dying, I would have taken it in a second because I thought death was my only option. I felt like I was caught into this deep, dark place and I couldn't get out any other way. And yet, of course, now they are both much better. But the point of it is, is that uh, uh, Ed Fastbill I really like because as much as I'm opposed to euthanasia and assisted suicide in general, uh, he has just carved out this part of the uh, the legislation saying no to that because clearly 
Canadians oppose that. A recent poll done by um, uh, Angus Reid showed that uh, 82% of Canadians thought that this should not happen until we improve mental health supports, but only 28% of Canadians actually supported the concept of euthanasia for uh, mental illness alone. Yeah, and actually, you raise an important point there. And I know you're not, you know, you don't work for Ed Fast. You're a, an advocate on the issue. But That's but right. Ed has done something very important here, because when C7 came up, the problem was this was really an issue that was being debated within a broader context of changes. And that was sort of the excuse to just pass it. Whereas if you deal with an isolation, someone who believes that uh, this exception, uh, you know, for mental illness uh, should be taken out or left in, like you actually have to defend that issue alone. You have to defend that right. slice of it alone. And it's very difficult for private members bill to get a hearing. This one actually is by virtue of where it is in the queue. Right. Yeah. So it's having its second hour debate actually today. Uh, the fact is, is that you might remember the history of it is that Bill C-7, when it came out, originally did not allow mm -hmm. made for mental illness. And then what happened is certain group of senators got together saying that uh, they would not support the changes to the legislation if it didn't include that. So mm -hmm. what happened, it went back to Parliament and Parliament then passed it. But I see a, a lot of them never even debated it. They didn't even think that this is what they were doing. They didn't understand. What I'm also concerned about is this issue of democracy. Now, why am I saying this? There's a lot of members of Parliament who are saying, you know, I agree with Ed Fast, but I have to support with my, I have to vote with my Liberal Party. Well, this is a private member's bill. It's got nothing to do with uh, liberal policy. It's got nothing to do with a budget or anything like that. It has to do with a private member's uh, business. So therefore, there should be clearly a free vote. But the liberals and the NDP, they have been, uh, how would you say, uh, they've been whipping the vote on this issue. And that, to me, is ridiculous if you consider the fact of where Canadians are at and how Canadians simply oppose this. Let me ask you uh, about the... The other issue of this that we see in Canada, which is uh, increasingly stories of MAID being offered to people who are not dealing with mental illness or physical illness, yeah. people that are dealing with housing insecurity, people that are dealing right. with poverty. And, and you know, I, I was talking earlier on about rising cost of living problems, about grocery store prices. These are contributing to uh, these broader social ills that we know are, are at least in, in a handful of cases, more than I would say we can call isolated. Uh, converting to people being recommended or seeking out assisted dying. Now, the reason I bring that up is because that the law, as I understand it and as I read it, does not allow that. This is practitioners of this going above and beyond what the regulations and the law says. And, and I'm concerned that we already have this attitude in parts of the medical community that doesn't really care about legal restrictions, it seems. And I, I'm wondering what your take on that is. Well, first of all, there is a, a small group of doctors who do a lot of euthanasia, medical aid and dying. There are some that do a little bit of it, but there's a small group that do a, a very many of them. And you see that in some of the articles. But what happened is, is that they actually technically allow this. And we, the reason is, is that they, uh, Bill C-7, when it got rid of the, uh, the type of a terminal illness requirement, it led to the fact that essentially what you need now is to have an irremediable medical condition. Because they say you have to be suffering. But as you know, Andrew, I, if you tell me you're suffering, I can't tell you you're not suffering. So yeah. there's nothing objective about it. You can't, you can't gauge that. So the well, yeah, men really like suffer from like the cold uh, or the flu in a way that <laughs> like some would argue is irremediable yeah. yeah well you threw that in because your wife probably reminded you of that but anyway <laughs> the fact of it is is that uh you know the fact of it is is that if you have an irremediable medical condition essentially means that people with disabilities 
really do qualify almost all the time for medical aid and dying in Canada. And that's what's been happening. So these people who are going through really quite extreme poverty or homelessness, or a lot of them, they had a situation where they were really having a hard time getting the medical treatment they needed. So that had to do with the access to our medical system, which is also a whole other issue that we we uh, we know is in a serious problem. Anyway, they were then saying, I have no choice because uh, I cannot continue living this way, so I will ask for euthanasia made. They were being approved based on their disability. So they weren't being approved based on their poverty. They were requesting it based on their poverty or their homelessness or the inability to get their medical treatment. And there's a few other reasons that are all social issues, uh, serious social ills within our, our country. And of course, the thing of homelessness is just exploded. And there's many reasons for that. And you could do uh, multiple shows on that one. But the fact of it is, is that when you're getting such a high level of homelessness, you can see how somebody with a disability who can't get access to uh, social housing because they have a limited income, they're sick enough that they can't work, they can't get access to social housing, uh, they're in fear of ending up on the streets, but they do qualify for euthanasia. So we can't get them a house but, or a place to live, yeah. but yeah, we can kill you. And that's somehow going to be about freedom, choice, and autonomy, which is, of course, the big joke of the whole thing. It's not about freedom, choice, and autonomy at all. It's really about abandonment when it comes down to it. Yeah, it's uh, heartbreaking all around. I'm glad Ed Fast is, uh, who, by the way, I mean, look, I, I don't know Ed Fast all that well. He's not exactly like a hardline social conservative no, culture war creator. So he, crusader. So he's actually probably one of the best people to put this forward because he's he's fairly moderate. And I, uh, it's it's unfortunate from what you've said that the other parties are, are not taking it in, in that uh, tone and, and working with him on this. But uh, hopefully if we get the public pressure up there, that might be able to change. Alex Schattenberg, Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. Thanks for coming on, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right. Yep. Thank you. And uh, we're just like rapid firing through topics today. We had a lot going on, all the things we couldn't get to earlier in the week that we're trying to cram in before the weekend, but uh, trying to give each one a, a little open air breathing because some of these are, are very important topics. And I, I've said time and time again, free speech is my hill to die on. And that means, you know, legal free speech that is uh, to stand up against censorship and regulation of speech by government, but also academic freedom and cultural free speech. The idea that we must foster in society an attitude that encourages and welcomes the exchange of ideas and information rather than discourages and cancels. And I was, of course, very intrigued by this course that was not offered when I was in university. Uh, I'll read the proper name of it because I, I don't want to give it a crude summation, but the uh, the proper name of the course is, uh, and it's a study of, of woke ideology here, and I, I lost the, uh, the thing here. Uh, there we go. It is called Woke, the Origins, Dynamics, and Implications of an Elite Ideology. Now, this is uh, not being offered at a Canadian school, not yet, uh, but it is being offered at the University of Birmingham by a Canadian professor, Eric Kaufman, who joins me now. Uh, professor, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Good to be here, Andrew. I, I should just one slight correction. It's University of Buckingham, not Birmingham. But Buckingham, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I get, I get my hams. It was all the Thanksgiving talk. I'm getting my hams mixed up here. Buckingham, yes. And I should say University of Buckingham is like a very, well, you've said it's the only free speech university really in the UK. It is, yeah. I mean, it has a strange origin because it was founded through uh, Margaret Thatcher and it sort of you know, even though most of the, of the staff and students still lean left, it's got more viewpoint diversity than you'll find on a typical British campus. So it's somewhat more hospitable and the leadership is very much in, in favor of moving it in this direction. 
So what is your class about? I mean, obviously you've got 15 weeks of material here. I don't expect you to give it all in a few minutes, right. but what is this course about? Well, it really is sort of begins with the intellectual history, the, you know, the how did we get to this ideology? How does it relate to, for example, socialism, liberalism, anarchism, and these other isms that go back earlier into the 19th century? And then we kind of look at what happens in the 60s, uh, how the left shifts, you know, from class towards identity, and, and then how that plays out into our own time. I then move on to, to looking at public opinion data, sort of who supports something like canceling J.K. Rowling, for example. I mean, it would tend to be younger people, it would tend to be, is it more female than male? Is it more left than right? And so on. And then how this is now affecting electoral politics, uh, the culture wars, the politics of the culture wars and speech boundaries, uh, you know, critical race theory, all of that. And then finally, looking at the philosophy, this, the questions that it raises, you know, free speech versus so-called equal speech. Um, so that's kind of a very quick and dirty. I mean, it's it's certainly there on the website. Uh, if you go to my Twitter, you can sort of see a link. But that we're going to do this sort of very uh, empirically, you know. I mean, there's a lot of academics. There are thousands of papers on the populist right, lots of courses on it. I've taught in that myself. But there's nothing on the woke left because it's just too uncomfortable to do. One thing I, I'm curious about, I years ago sought out to write a book about political correctness. And I, I did years of research on this and just ultimately, uh, for a number of reasons, walked away from it. But one of the things that I, I found in, in doing that is that political correctness as a word or as a, as a term when it was first introduced was view was described and used by the people that wanted political correctness and they wanted to be politically correct and then it morphed and was only used by people that were decrying it and criticizing it and am i correct in saying that woke has kind of gone through a bit of a similar phase where it was introduced as a very positive favorable concept by the woke people and now they've sort of backed off of the word and it's only really being used by people that are calling out wokeness yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, the, the, what I would say, I mean, there's no question people abuse the word and stretch the word to mean anything they don't like. Um, well, some, actually, some people just use it as a stand-in for left, which I, I don't think is entirely accurate. No, I, I don't think it's accurate and is, is somewhat of a, of a way of devaluing what is actually quite a useful, I think, empirically tight social scientific term. So I, I have a one-sentence definition. It's... Uh, making sacred, uh, sorry, the making sacred of historically marginalized race, gender, and sexual identity groups. So once you erect these groups as sacred, uh, anything that might offend the most hypothetically sensitive member of one of these groups is blasphemy or, or criticizing anything that's done in the name of helping uh, such as these, uh, these groups, such as anti-racism or trans affirmation or whatever. If you criticize any such movement, that is also a violation of the sacred and therefore cause for excommunication or cancellation. So there's this very religious quality to it. And I think it is a useful term and it, it describes uh, something that is very real and has emerged strongly in our time. Based on that definition, can wokeness be separated from victimhood and this veneration of victims? Um, it very much, it springs from the victimhood culture. So the wider uh, ideology is based on, you might call it a victimhood culture, um, and sort of sort of emotional safety, emotional trauma prevention is sort of the mantra. But but of course that is broader than just race, gender, sexuality. Could apply to disability, even potentially class. In theory, 
uh, would fit into the victimhood model. But there is a focus very specifically in wokeness on just race, gender, and sexuality. I think the fat stuff, the the uh, class stuff, that doesn't have the same pickup. It doesn't seem like there's as much energy in canceling and pushing for DEI along those axes. So I think it's much more specific to these three categories. Is your view that the woke, uh, whoever they are, and, and maybe that's something you want to define, do they see wokeness as a tool, as a vehicle to get to where they want, or is it the destination? I think it is the destination. I mean, um, Jonathan Haidt has these the his moral foundations theory, and there's really two foundations. One is equal outcomes. So all identity groups that could be black, white, male, female, uh, etc., should have equal outcomes in terms of income, in terms of honors and esteem, and so on. That would be one prong of it. The other prong is again this this microscopic, even microaggression, sort of harm protection. So anything that might offend or upset in any way somebody's emotional state mm-hmm. must be prevented, which is why they're going after free speech, for example, which speech which might offend, right? So I think there is um, there is something real there and is rooted in these two moral foundations, but just taken to the extreme. Your description of it as making sacred, I I think, is incredibly appropriate because a lot of people have seen that religious-like fervor uh, from people who, again, would identify as fundamentally anti-religion in a a lot of cases and and would talk about the harm of religion against certain groups. And it's it's interesting how blind they are to what this does to uh, several groups and and people as well. And I I guess I wanted to ask a, a little bit about that because by making it sacred, you have to elevate it above other things that have had a level of, of sanctity in society. Freedom of speech is a notable one. I mean, it used to be that even people who are fairly progressive would still operate within the parameters of free speech is important. And, you know, they'd use free speech to make their point. Uh, that was, I think, the dominant force you'd saw in progressives for much of the last 50 years. And, and now... Uh, freedom of speech no longer has any sacred value. In fact, it, it's viewed uh, as an evil that needs to be dealt with in society by a lot of these people. Yeah, and, and that's been documented in in opinion survey data in the U.S. going back to the 70s, that, that there's been a shift from kind of a more moral relativism toleration to moral absolutism in, in young people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want to... St- I think it's a mistake to see this as as completely new. And I think, you know, if you talk about political correctness in the 80s and 90s, um, was it acceptable to offend minority groups in the late 80s and early 90s? It, no, is the answer. They had speech codes at U.S. universities. I actually think you already had a pretty restrictive speech climate. The doors were kind of, I think, pretty wide open. And that's why you did see episodes of cancel culture. You know, the UBC political science department in the mid 1990s was just one episode. It just was less frequent because you didn't have social media to organize flash mobs. Um, so but I, if I, if I, I could, if I could jump in yeah. though, professor, I, I feel that what happened there, you're right. The, the acceptability was already established or the unacceptability. I feel what happened is the threshold was changed is, is that what offense was, was redefined. And I, I wonder if that's the goalpost shift that leads us to where we are now as well. The same idea. I mean, being a racist has been, uh, you know, out of vogue for many decades, but the definition of racism has changed a lot in that time. True, true. I mean, I think you're right. You know, the idea of hiking being racist and punctuality being a white thing, you know, that there's no question that they've taken it to the next level. Mm -hmm. The only thing I would say, though, is you can find 
examples, you know, in the mid 70s, evolutionary psychologists who argued that genetics mattered, and this wasn't race IQ, this was just genetics mattering for social behavior. They were ostracized, they had open letters. So I'm, even though you're right that there are some new, there's been some new conceptual stretching, I think quite a bit of that had already occurred. And certainly in academia, if you look at the uh, published work already in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, critical race theory dates from the 70s, you know, Chris Rufo in his book talks about this. So these ideas were already there. It's just that they hadn't spread as widely. And yes, there were some innovations. The trans thing is new, but I, I, I would stress the continuities more than the, the discontinuities. Social media is more quanti quantitative scaling up rather than a qualitative change in my view. One of the challenges that I would have, and again, I, I'm, I'm basing this off of how I've used woke, not necessarily the, the parameters that you've set for it, is that there often there's a prevailing theme in it, and there are commonalities in, in how it's, it's applied. But is it as coherent? Is it coherent enough to to be an ideology in the sense that do the woke apply the rules they set equally? In your view, do if someone's committed to wokeness. Uh, do you find that they're consistently applying it, or do you think that there are inconsistencies in that? Well, I think if you narrow it to the sort of sacred categories, then it's pretty consistently applied. So they, so any time there is a disparity in outcome between white and black, let's say in terms of entering Harvard or in terms of wealth, uh, you know, they will be on top of that. Uh, if there are more black people being incarcerated or, or excluded from school, they'll be on top of that. Now, what, what they won't apply that to is, for example, uh, if Jews are doing better than um, gypsy and Irish travelers here in Britain, or, or if West Indians or, or sort of East, West Africans are doing better than West Indians <clears throat> within the black group, they don't care about those distinctions. So because those distinctions aren't the sacred ones. So I'd say they're being inconsistent in ignoring a lot of different social categories where there are inequalities of outcome, mm. but on their sacred categories, uh, I think they're applying those fairly consistently. So the, the, the rules are simply, okay. yeah. I, so I'm, I'm just like, look, in Canada, as you're well aware, in the last few weeks, we've had the, the boiling point in the parental rights movement where we've had trans activists and, and Muslim activists that are in conflict. And generally speaking, I'd say the woke left has sided with the trans activists, despite the Muslims being their sacred cows for much of the last 20 years. So I'm just curious with, with your approach to this issue, how you would explain that phenomenon. Well, there is a, a sort of hierarchy of oppression points. You know, there's the top of the totem pole, and then there's the white male cis hetero type at the very bottom of the totem. Oh, yeah, I don't stand pole. a chance. <laughs> no. So the question that is right is is who's got more points? Is is it is it the Muslims hmm. who have more points, or or is it trans who have more points? And I think it's as simple as trans having more points. It's just like trans gets more points than feminist. Uh, you know, and, and female. And I think it's it's as simple as that, is who is seen as punching up and who's seen as punching down. I, I don't think it's more complicated really than that. And of course, of course, the, what matters are those sacred categories, race, gender, sexuality, and it's just who has more points. So I, I'm just curious, and I don't know the student profile at the University of Buckingham, but but what would you love to see in your class? What's the enrollment profile of your class you'd, you'd absolutely love here? Because I, I think secretly, or maybe openly, you might like the really like woke, lefty, non-binary with the purple hair student in there, having it out with someone who loves free speech and all of that. 
Yeah, exactly. I think it would be ideally it would be 50-50. I mean, a lot of the uh, the data we have from fire in the US would show, you know, when you have a, a roughly 50-50 mix, you've got the, the least self-censorship going on. Mm-hmm. I, I'd only want, you know, I would want somebody who is was woke and I want plenty of left-wingers. I don't want it to be an echo chamber. Um, if we could get somebody in there who was woke, but who was uh, willing to defend it in a Socratic style to say, well, I think you know, equality trumps liberty, and this is important for human flourishing, or the speech boundaries should be much tighter than they are. I mean, I think that kind of debate would be really interesting. I, the problem, of course, is when you get people who just stick a label on others and think, okay, they're toxic, yeah. and I'm going to be polluted by hanging out with them. And so, no, we have to know platform. I mean, once you're into that or emotional uh, blackmail, then then it's not productive. Yeah, or someone who feels unsafe in the climate yeah. of, of ideas, which is uh, not a, not an issue I, I hope you'll have to contend with in your, your new uh, university home here. Uh, Professor, Eric, <laughs> Professor Eric Coffin, I wish you the best with the class. Maybe we'll uh, uh, find some great essays you've done that we can uh, publish over at True North uh, for, for some of your students. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Thank you. That was Professor Eric Coffin. What a great idea. And again, I mean, it's like there's like a class in the U.S. where you can do like the history of Taylor Swift or something. So uh, which might actually be enjoyable, but I'd rather do a deep dive academic and empirically, academically and empirically into wokeness. That's more my bag than uh, T-Swizzle. But nevertheless, hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. We will talk to you all on Tuesday with Canada's most irreverent talk show's return. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you. God bless. And good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.